Welcome to Focus Americas, a new podcast brought to you by Scotiabank Perspectives. Focus Americas examines economic and political developments affecting countries across the Americas. Host Phil Smith, Head of Investor Relations at Scotiabank, talks to thought leaders inside and outside the bank for their insights on the forces that are driving those developments, from Canada in the north to Chile in the south. Hello and welcome to Scotiabank's Focus America podcast series. Today's episode is the constitutional process in Chile. My name is Philip Smith of Scotiabank and I will be hosting today's podcast. My distinguished guest today is Mr. Tom Shannon, Senior International Policy Advisor with the firm of Arnold and Porter in Washington. Ambassador Shannon is an expert in the field of international relations having had more than three decades of government service and diplomatic experience, serving most recently as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, the third highest ranking position at the U.S. State Department. Ambassador Shannon holds the personal rank of Career Ambassador as the highest ranking member of the U.S. Foreign Service. He also served as Ambassador to Brazil and has also served in the U.S. Foreign Service at embassies in Guatemala, South Africa, and Venezuela. As such, as he is uniquely qualified to opine on Latin American affairs, and we're pleased to have him with us as our guest today. So, Tom, maybe if I can start off, uh, Chile has been in the news uh, recently, certainly for the past year. It started uh, somewhat inauspiciously with riots back in, uh, I guess, October of 2019, uh, and that was followed by a series of government commitments to hold a referendum on the Constitution, which took place on October 25th. So maybe if you could pick up there and, and think about the, the process from here on out for Chile, can you, can you provide some historical context on the Chilean constitution? I'm not sure it's something many of our listeners are that familiar with. Maybe refer to its origins, you know, what's in it and, and what the impact has been on Chile. Sure. Thank you very much, Phil. It's a real pleasure to be with you today and a real honor uh, to be uh, on the Scotia podcast and speaking to your many listeners. And thank you very much for your kind introduction. And the topic of Chile's uh, constitutional or national plebiscite on uh, a new constitution, uh, the approval by the Chilean people of a new constitution, and then, of course, the process that Chile is now in of, of beginning to, to build out what that constitutional uh, convention will look like uh, is historic from Chile's point of view. Um, as you noted, uh, Chile's current constitution, uh, which was written and approved in 1980, uh, was done so under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet uh, and a Chilean military government. Uh, and it has endured uh, across these several decades, even while Chile has democratized and has dramatically expanded uh, its economy and uh, its position as a, a major trader in Latin America and throughout the world um, because it provided a, a set of guidelines for that, that Chileans found useful in addressing the transfer from authoritarian government to uh, democratic government from a largely closed economy to an open economy. Uh, and because the Chileans historically found a political ability to manage political differences and to build political um, coalitions uh, across significant uh, divides in, in Chile's political spectrum. 
that that allowed Chile to pursue its democratization and its economic growth with significant political stability. This actually begins to break down um, several years ago as Chilean students begin to take to the streets to complain about conditions in Chile's education system, and especially in the tertiary or university education system, and then the challenges that many Chilean students faced finding jobs as they left university. Um, these kinds of protests bubbled uh, in, in Chile for many years, but as you noted, in, in October of 2019, in the aftermath of a decision to raise transportation prices in major cities, um, this bubbling became um, a, a much more than a bubble. It became a full-throated uh, boil. And uh, Chileans moved into the streets to pro protest what they considered to be uh, um, inequality in their own society and engaged in, in significant confrontation with Chilean security services and police forces, something that Chile had not seen in a long time. And the political impact was dramatic inside of Chile. But what's interesting about Chile and where Chile needs to be applauded is that although there was an initial effort to control and repress demonstrators by using the police, it was became quickly apparent to Chilean political uh, authorities that this was not going to work and that, in fact, the Chilean government and Chilean political leaders needed to find a way to engage with demonstrators. And this led to a series of negotiations in which Chile decided that the best way to end street violence and end political turmoil was by offering the Chilean people a plebiscite as to whether or not they wanted to replace the Constitution of 1980 with a, a new constitution. And this worked. And in this regard, Chile is to be congratulated, and the Chilean people and, the, and Chilean political leadership is to be congratulated because they recognized that the solution in a democratic society to this kind of turmoil was more democracy. In other words, offering people a voice in, 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 in establishing their national direction and purpose through a new constitution. And the vote that we saw on October 25th was the Chilean people saying, in a very loud and united voice, with 78% of the population voting in favor of a new constitution, to begin the process of writing that new constitution. So you mentioned that the, the constitution did endure for quite a long time, but that obviously the students uh, and some other uh, uh, constituencies in, in Chilean society were not happy with obviously inequality and other things. But could you, could, you know, was there one specific issue? Was it simply the students or you know, given that it seemed to be a rather leaderless protest and somewhat spontaneous, were there other groups or interests involved? And, and that obviously reflects on the constitutional process. Are there a lot of people that the constitutional reform needs to please here going forward? Well, uh, the, the fact that 78% of uh, Chileans who participated in the plebiscite voted in favor of a new constitution means that that broad swath of Chilean society believed that the older constitution had uh, run its uh, length. Uh, in other words, needed to be uh, renewed and, and fixed in some fashion. The, the existing government of President Piñera and his political party had offered the possibility of amendments to the constitution. In other words, to maintain the core of the 1980 constitution, uh, but just change things that 
uh, political parties and other political leaders um, thought were inappropriate or no longer useful. What's striking is is that um, the Chilean people did not want that approach. They wanted uh, a wholesale rewriting of, of the Constitution. And therefore, it's hard to say that there's one or two aspects of the 1980 Constitution um, that were either upsetting or no longer viewed as, as valid or legitimate for 21st century um, Chile, except to say that for many Chileans, uh, the 1980 Constitution was seen as one of the last vestiges of the dictatorship of General uh, Augusto Pinochet. And in that sense, um, many Chileans thought it was time for them to leave their history behind them, to shake this off the Chilean body politic, and instead to concentrate on how to shape Chile for the rest of the 21st century. So you mentioned, obviously, there was a very strong turnout, 78 uh, percent voting in favor. Um, were there any other sort of key takeaways uh, that you read into into the vote? Any surprises at all or anything that um, investors or observers of Chile should keep their eye on going forward? Well, there's a couple of things worth mentioning. Um, you know, while the, uh, the approval of the Constitution, uh, a new Constitution was significant with a 78% approval vote, uh, the turnout itself for the vote was only 51%. Um, um, by American standards is pretty good, but by Chilean standards could be better. Uh, um, but um, the, 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 the vote itself was, was clear in terms of its direction. But the, the, what was presented to the Chileans were really a series of questions. The first question was, should a new constitution be drafted? And that is what got 78% of the vote. The second question asked the Chilean people how it should be drafted or by whom. In other words, should it be drafted by a constitutional convention, which would be directly elected by the people, or should it be done by a mixed constitutional convention in which half of the members would be existing members of parliament and half would be citizens elected directly to the convention? And 79% of Chileans chose the first option, in other words, constitutional convention that was directly elected. And what's striking about this is that effectively the Chilean people we're rejecting the sitting parliament as a participant in the convention writing process. Uh, and this was a significant blow to traditional uh, Chilean political leadership and traditional uh, Chilean political parties. So you mentioned that as, as we go forward then, um, the process going forward, so you have a constitutional convention and then you have the existing sitting parliament. Um, you know, how will those two interact going forward or will there be any interaction at all? And is there a potential for, you know, a political schism of sorts between those two bodies? It's a great question. Uh, and it's an issue that every country that puts in place a constitutional convention uh, uh, has to deal with. Um, the reality is, is that Chilean politics will continue uh, independent of the constitutional writing or the constitution writing process. Um, and let me just take a, a second to kind of lay out kind of what this schematic looks like. Uh, the vote in October approving a constitutional convention and approving direct election of members of the constitutional convention sets up a vote to elect the members of that uh, constitutional convention. And that vote will take place in April of, of next year. And then once in place, the, uh, the members of the constitutional convention uh, we'll have nine months um, to write a new constitution with a three-month kind of grace period 
to, if they need it, to continue the, the negotiation and writing of that Constitution, with the idea being that uh, the Constitution would then be presented to the Chilean people in a referendum, probably in August of 2022. So, so you have a, a, a fairly tight period of time in, in which a constitutional convention has to be elected, organize itself, pass its, its rules and its um, kind of mechanisms of order, and then get to work negotiating uh, and writing a new constitution and then presenting it to the Chilean people. Of course, while all that's taking place, Chile still needs to be governed. And so it will have a president, it will have a sitting parliament, and in fact, it will have presidential and parliamentary elections. November of 2021. So you're going to have quite a, um, a fraught and interesting presidential and parliamentary election process because it will take place right in the middle of the writing of a new constitution. And so one can imagine politically that the issues that the constitutional convention is dealing with will be the same kinds of issues that presidential candidates and parliamentary candidates will be dealing with. But at this point, absent a clear understanding of what the rules of, of order will be for the uh, Constitutional Convention. Um, it's difficult to anticipate where the Constitutional Convention and a parliament might converge or cross each other. Um, but the, uh, the, the way in which um, the, the referendum was written and the way in which it was presented and the way in which the Co Constitutional Convention will, will function, my understanding is that the rules of order that will be uh, used to define how the Constitutional Convention behaves, how it considers and approves um, articles to a constitution, requires a, a two-thirds approval by the Constitutional Convention or the members of the Constitutional Convention, which will probably ensure that there is a, a, uh, a broadly accepted approach to writing of the Constitution and a broadly accepted understanding of the role of the convention. So I, I think that Chile is going to find a way to navigate this period of time without the constitutional convention and, and the parliament um, uh, converging on each other uh, or creating a, uh, a political conflict or confrontation. Well, that's certainly good to know from a sort of governance perspective going forward here. Now, if, if, if things weren't interesting enough, I guess, with the constitutional assembly and the parliament, um, we're going to throw a presidential election into the mix in 2021. Do you see either the constitutional process or the presidential election having an impact on each other? Uh, I, I, I can see the well. Yes, I, I think the short answer is yes, uh, because as I noted, uh, this is going to be a very fraught uh, political environment, um, and it will be an environment in which Chile, uh, like the rest of the world. Uh, will hopefully be emerging from the pandemic and the COVID crisis that has um, settled on us uh, and will be addressing the, the economic and the social consequences uh, of, of that pandemic. And, and when, you, when you combine the, the, the social impact, uh, the impact on public health systems, the impact on the economy, then the, the political impact, plus the whole process of, of writing a, a, a constitution, I would think that the presidential election itself and the candidates who will be, be running in that election uh, will know and understand that in many ways the Chile that, that uh, they would govern 
will be a chilly um, kind of structured by a constitution that was still in the process of being written. And so I think the effort to articulate viewpoints, present those viewpoints, and then hope that they resonate inside a constitutional um, convention would, would be significant. So you mentioned uh, going forward that April of 21 would start the nine-month period to write the new constitution. There'd be a three-month grace period. Um, you know, when you think about going forward then here, are there are there any outcomes considered likely at this point? And, and if so, what are the implications for Chile, or life in Chile broadly? Uh, is this reform to you expect the education system, the social safety nets, the pension system, those sorts of things to it change materially, or is it simply too early to speculate? I think it's too early to speculate uh, on the specific nature of changes, but I don't think it's too early to, to speculate on the need for changes. Um, you know, Chile in, in many ways has been a, a remarkable country in, in terms of its ability to manage a transition from um, dictatorship to democracy. Uh, to do so um, with remarkable ability and stability, and has had political leadership that was amazing from my point of view and its ability to to navigate um, the, the, the the really tough issues that, that Chile faced in addressing the history of the military dictatorship, what it did to Chilean society, and also how it was able to preserve an economy that had begun to produce significant wealth for Chile. But what has, what has become apparent over the past several years is that as prosperous as Chile has been, it still suffers from very significant inequality inside of Chile. And a whole um, uh, kind of sector of Chilean society that feels itself quite vulnerable uh, to economic downturn. Um, in some instances, it's because of the, the nature of employment in the Chilean economy, um, the nature of the education system, and how students move from um, trade schools and high schools and universities uh, into, into the workforce. Um, uh, but um, some of it also has to do with the significant privatization that Chile underwent, in which many Chileans feel that uh, absent a stronger social safety net in Chile, that they're very vulnerable uh, should they find themselves out of work uh, or without access to, to private insurance. And, and therefore, I think that there will be a social focus uh, in, in this um, constitutional convention that is going to be looking at how do you preserve the engines of Chile's economic growth while ensuring a, a, a more equitable distribution of wealth, a reduction in inequality, and especially uh, uh, a, a reduction in the sense of vulnerability, especially in the, the middle class and lower middle class, uh, and, and providing Chileans with some sense that they do have a state to turn to in the event of a personal uh, catastrophe. So some, some have argued that um, this sort of process Chile is going through is a, is a bit of a transition from more of a, a neoliberal kind of model to a social democratic model. Um, would you agree with that? And and are there any other any parallels to other countries that have gone through a similar process or evolution, say in North America or Europe or elsewhere in the world? Well, remember that Chile was governed for many years by the Concertación, which is really a, a, a grouping of parties on the left. 
uh, and were led by um, socialist presidents. Um, so in many ways, Chile has been a social democracy and, and not a, a, a neoliberal uh, country. Um, but I, I do think that what we're seeing here really is the impact of the extraordinary changes that, that technology and globalization are driving around the world. Uh, and, and that uh, while the model of the Concertación worked well and the social democratic framework worked well for Chile at a certain period of time, the changes that Chile has experienced across these decades, which have been accelerating uh, with time, uh, have, have actually required that, that Chile take a, a fresh look at its economic and its political structure to determine what's going to work best. And in this regard, you know, looking backwards might not be kind of the right way. I mean, there are any number of countries that have gone through constitutional conventions. Um, and, and quite frankly, especially in, in Latin America, countries as they make transitions from authoritarian governments uh, to democratic governments, also rewrite their constitutions. Uh, Brazil did this when it moved from military government to civilian government. Uh, Colombia, uh, uh, although Colombia has the longest standing democracy in, in South America, Colombia has also gone through uh, several um, uh, exercises of, of rewriting and updating constitutions, uh, as have many of the Central American countries. And I mean, if there's lessons to be learned from these, uh, it's that um, these constitutions tend to be overly long, uh, overly detailed and specific, and oftentimes create a, a sense of expectation that is difficult uh, to meet in reality. And what I mean by that is the tendency is to put into constitutions a whole series of economic, social, and, and cultural rights um, that then generate expectation or uh, a, uh, an expectation of an outcome um, that many countries can't then meet because they don't have the economic wealth or the resources to do so. And, and so I, I think what, what Chile is going to have to do is kind of look at what countries have done um, around the globe, try to figure out how best to create a model that's going to allow Chile to to fashion a, a, a political, economic, and social structure that has a degree of flexibility that allows Chile to adapt to the circumstances it's going to face uh, in, a, in a global economy, especially one emerging from a pandemic, uh, and, then, and then try to in, in ensure that it addresses the political problems that generated each of our constitution in the first place. Right. So if we think looking now out for Chile, how would you sort of describe your outlook or for Chile from here on? Is it obviously dependent on the constitutional process, but also, you know, the pandemic plays a role, uh, the economy plays a role as well. Uh, but how would you describe, you know, the outlook you would have for Chile at this time? For, for me, it would be positive. Um, I mean, Chile has big challenges in front of it, um, but the Chileans have shown an ability to face these challenges and face them in a clear-eyed way to understand what it is they're, they're, they have to do. And, and they have found a way uh, domestically uh, to fashion the kinds of dialogue and cooperation that is needed uh, to move forward. And it is my hope that that building off um, the example of using more democracy to address the, the kinds of political and social turmoil that Chile was uh, experiencing will be seen at, uh, by the Chileans themselves 
as a smart thing, as a wise thing, and that as Chileans engage in debates around the, the first the vote for um, the members of the Constitutional Convention, and then once the convention is seated, uh, following the the activities of the members of the convention and how they begin writing this process. I, I, I think that what you'll see is, is an effort by Chileans to preserve uh, those aspects of um, Chilean political and economic life that have generated stability and economic growth uh, and have attracted foreign investment uh, and have made Chile such a, an important economic and commercial partner for, for so many countries like the United States and Canada. Uh, uh, but, but at the same time, uh, we'll be able to address the, the underlying problems that, that generate the political crisis and begin to look for ways to uh, uh, enhance distribution of, of wealth and ensure people that uh, they will be protected in the events of, of personal catastrophe. Well, I think that's certainly cause for optimism, and I think it's a, it's a process. I think the world is going to be watching with keen interest as we go forward. Uh, Tom, any, any sort of closing thoughts uh, before we, we wrap up the podcast today? I would just say, I would just repeat that, um, uh, you know, I, I've had the, the pleasure of, of working um, uh, on issues related to U.S.-Chile relations for quite some time. Uh, and um, my experience uh, with Chile has been remarkably positive. Uh, and I've come away deeply respectful uh, of the country and its culture, uh, deeply respectful of what Chileans have been able to accomplish over time. Uh, and I really do think that how Chile manages uh, the, the challenges in front of it could very well be an example to many other countries who are facing uh, similar moments or similar uh, political crises and recognizing that ultimately the purpose of democratic governments is not only to provide individuals a voice in determining national destiny, it's also to allow individuals to have a voice in determining their own destiny and really looking to their governments to respond to them by offering them the opportunities, the resources, and the security they need to achieve their, their full potential as human beings. And in this regard, I think Chile is one of the leading lights in, in showing how you use democratic government to achieve a democratic society. And I wish them the very best. Well, Tom, thank you very much. I certainly appreciate your comments. Uh, I think with that, we'll, we'll wrap up today's episode of our Focus America podcast series. I would like to thank Ambassador Tom Shannon for his uh, comments today. We greatly appreciate his insight and analysis, and we certainly look forward to having him as a guest again soon. Thank you all very much for participating today. This concludes today's podcast.